All right, good evening, everybody. Good to see everyone. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 4. First Peter 4. Now, last week we uh, started chapter 4. I'd like to just back up to verse 1 and just uh, review a little bit where uh, Peter said, Therefore, and of course, whenever there is a therefore, you've got to see why it's therefore. It's always there because um, it's drawing us back to something that's already been said. And uh, the context was Christ suffering for us. But therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. Now, last week we said that the uh, key idea uh, that this whole paragraph is built around is found in the phrase, arm yourself. Now, uh, that's the uh, Greek verb, hoplitsumai. And uh, it's a word used in the Greek of a soldier that was preparing for battle by putting on his armor. But this Greek word happens to be talking about heavy-duty armor. This is going to be uh, a fight against a very formidable enemy. The devil is the strongest enemy we're ever going to face in this life. And we need to put on everything God has given us if we're going to be protected against his attacks, and be victorious uh, over him, taking territory by God's grace away from the devil, and that is souls for the kingdom. And uh, But as we said last time, all Christians know the uh, armor of a Christian that Paul lists in Ephesians chapter 6. But uh, very few understand that without arming themselves with the proper attitude, it's pretty much worthless. And so when Peter tells us to arm yourselves, notice he connects this command to arm yourselves also with the same mind. And of course, as we spoke about last week, the mind that Peter is referring to is the mind of Christ toward suffering. Back up to chapter 2, and let's look at starting with verse 21. Because really this goes all the way back to what Peter was saying back there as he's kind of laying out the suffering of Christ and then begins to apply that mind to us. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you were called. We're, we're called to suffer. Uh, it's no big thing. Peter's going to say before it's all over with, don't think it's some strange thing that you're going through fiery trials. I mean, this is what it's all about. Uh, this is really what the Christian life, if it's being lived properly, Jesus said, if they've hated me, they're going to hate you also. The world is not going to be your friend. Uh, anyone who tries to make themselves a friend of the world is an enemy of God, the Bible says. Uh, so, uh, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. That's hard, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know about you, uh, that's hard. When he suffered, did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And so Peter, again, in verse 1, says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, guys, since Peter has used Jesus as an example of someone who suffered and died at the hands of his enemies, this statement by Peter, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, is probably, we said there's several interpretations uh, of that verse, of that statement. But honestly, as you look at the context, uh, it's probably a reference to Christian martyrdom and how it liberates us from our physical fallen bodies where we never have to battle with sin anymore. Uh, one author put it this way, said, and I quote, thousands of martyrs throughout church history have been willing to die because they armed themselves with the same purpose Christ Jesus had, to be faithful to the Father no matter what, knowing that the cross, listen, precedes the crown. The greater the righteous suffering, the greater is the reward. And history's martyrs realized that there is the greatest triumph of all in death because believers who have died have ceased from sin. The perfect tense verb emphasizes a permanent condition free from sin. 
For Christ it was, of course, eternal. He bore sin's curse only, uh, only once and for all. And believers can face death with the same attitude their Lord had, that when it comes, they will have entered into an, into an eternal condition of holy perfection, free from all sin's influence and effects, end quote. And we wait for that day, don't we? Here's the thing. These Christians were going through some of the most horrific suffering you can imagine uh, when Peter wrote this. We'll see it a little more as we go, too, but... They were going through tremendous suffering and persecution. And for them, they longed to be out of here. They longed to go home. Uh, and because of it, they didn't get entangled with the cares of this life. They served the Lord. Peter's admonished them to serve the Lord faithfully. But uh, they were really looking to be released from their bodies, to be in the presence of the Lord, and to never have to wrestle with sin anymore. Can you imagine an existence where you never be, never tempted? You never have an evil thought? You, you never want to do anything contrary to what God's will is? That was Jesus, right? There, there's coming a day when we will be made like him, right? 1 John 3, for we will see him as he is. Talking about the rapture, and when, you know, there's the shout and the trumpet, and the Lord says, come up here, we see him face to face, we will be glorified, and uh, sin will never be an issue ever again. But in uh, verse 2, Peter says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. So we still live in these bodies, but we are not the same people we once were. We've been redeemed. We are new creations. And so Peter's now going to focus from the eternal to the temporal, practical exhortation, that he no longer should live in the rest of his time in the flesh, for the lust of men, see, that life is over, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. When Peter talks about the will of the Gentiles, he's basically talking about the will of the unsaved world, that world that we belong to at one time, all the friends we used to run with, and all the things we used to do as a group because we all thought the same way. It was all about having fun or whatever we were doing, but uh, we surrounded ourselves with people who thought like us and who did what we wanted to do because misery loves company, right? And then Peter lists some of the sins that, those folks back then, unbelievers, used to like to do, and the list isn't really any different from the list today in our world. He speaks of lewdness, and the Greek word here indicates unrestrained sexual immorality. Are we living in those times? Yeah. The word refers to behavior that shocks public decency. Well, what public decency? All right, but uh, behavior that shocks public decency in Second Peter, he uses the word to describe the filthy lifestyle of the people of Sodom. Second Peter 2.7. Then he speaks about lust. And uh, this is a word that speaks of the sinful passions that drive people uh, into any kind of indulgence, uh, sexual or otherwise. But I think, again, the uh, primary focus is on sexual sin. We read about this uh, word, Paul used it in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, where he said, But uh, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Same Greek word, which drown men in destruction and perdition. So lust is the, uh, it's covetousness, actually. It's the same idea. Uh, in fact, in the uh, King James, when Jesus said, um, with great desire, uh, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Uh, some of the translations say, uh, I have coveted, because uh, that means strongly desired. I think the King James might even translate it, I have lusted after this time with you. And we would think, well, that's, that's sick, you know, but the word just simply means strong desire. And uh, of course, in the King James, they, they used it, but we now always think of it in sexual terms, so it's not appropriate to translate it in the newer translations that way. But uh, a very strong desire 
that leads to all kinds of actions. He talks about drunkenness, which literally means in the Greek wine bubbling up, okay, or bubbling over. Uh, refers to habitual intoxication. Uh, this term can also refer to the effects of drugs being uh, high under the influence of some drug. The reason Peter includes this in this list, which deals mostly with sexual sins, is because obviously drunkenness and immorality go hand in hand. Uh, that's why when they worshipped these uh, pagan gods and goddesses back then, many of them were fertility gods and goddesses, and they were worshipped through sexual orgy, they always got drunk first. And we see it today. He talks about revelries. Word refers to participating in wild parties or even orgies. Tell me spring break doesn't fall into that category. I thought it was bad when I was going to high school. I mean, nowadays, it is a bacchanalian orgy. He speaks about drinking parties. You say, don't these kind of all, they, they overlap. Okay, he's trying to cover all the bases, all right? Drinking parties, a Greek word that uh, basically means uh, where people gathered for one purpose only, and that was to get drunk. Again, I think of some of the college campuses. I've seen things on TV where, um, and kids have died uh, to see who can drink the most alcohol at one time. And yet they got this, this tube into their mouth, and they, got this, and they pull the top, and it just whoosh. And, and, and kids have died from uh, uh, alcohol intoxication. Um, but but it, it's just craziness, craziness. And then finally, abominable idolatries. This not only speaks of worshiping idols. Uh, back then, Bacchus was the Greek god of wine. But again, there were many fertility gods and goddesses that they worshipped through wild sexual orgies. And the, this Greek word uh, tries to capture that. Um, it's the wild orgies associated with pagan religious worship when people abandoned all restraint and gave themselves over to wild ecstasy and excess, as one commentator defines it. Pretty dark picture, okay? Peter says, that's what we used to do. Good heavens, let's not go back there. We've gotten past all that, hopefully. Uh, so it's time to live uh, the new life and so on. Verse 4. In regard to these, all these who participate in this kind of lifestyle, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The word flood there literally means to pour out or overflow. And the word dissipation, asotia in the Greek, means to be prodigal, Wasteful. That's what the prodigal son, uh, that's what that word means. Wasteful, profligate. Uh, these folks that, it's like they don't just dip their toe in sin. It's like they're standing under a waterfall. It just overflows them, is the idea. Peter said, you know, we used to be involved with that, but these folks who are still doing these things, well, they think it's strange that you're not running to the same excess that they're running in, uh, that you used to be involved in. I was listening to a pastor this week. He was teaching on this, and uh, he was talking about a guy that was coming to his church, and uh, this guy had been a fallen-down drunk, a wife-beater, but his wife never left him. They weren't saved. She stayed with him. Guy gets saved. God delivers him from the alcohol, no longer was beating his wife, was treating her kindly. She couldn't deal with his Christianity and divorced the guy. <laughs> really? But, but, but Peter's describing a lifestyle, and that's what it is. It's not even the actions. It's what they are by nature is the idea. He's describing, well, what we used to be before we got saved. Not that all of us were as bad as everybody, but... This is, you know, I think he's probably talking about uh, those that just are the poster children for the excess, okay, and all. But it's just talking about our fallen nature, the flesh, and how we live to satisfy it at one time. That's all we thought about. It was how could we satisfy our flesh, what to drink, what to eat, uh, how to have sex with people. That was the whole mindset. And 
when we got delivered from that, we lost probably, I, I know I lost all my drinking buddies, okay? I lost all my old friends. They didn't want to hang around me anymore. I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm trying to talk to them about the Lord. They don't want anything to do with me, all right? They thought it was weird. It was strange. Uh, it's just interesting how the mindset works, right? That today, if a young lady's a virgin, she's weird, really weird. I mean, I, I've seen people, when they find out, uh, you know, that so-and-so is a virgin or whatever, and this could be male or female, um, the world thinks you're really strange, that you haven't had sex. Why, why are you living like that? Don't you have to, you know, try the person out before you commit to them? That's how the world thinks, Okay. And Peter is coming against all that. But see, it shouldn't surprise us. You don't have to turn there, but uh, Paul talks about the last days, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. And he lists all these things that are going to be taking place in the last days. And uh, people would have a form of godliness, deny its power. They would be lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. Uh, and he lists the whole thing here. It would be uh, unthankful, unholy. Uh, would be rebellious towards parents and all authority. And he lists this whole uh, litany of things that would be would characterize the last days. And, and as I've said it before, I'll say it again, you read that list, it's like you're watching the evening news. It's just that's our society now. And it's gotten so bad, it's looked at as being normal, as being normal. But Peter said they might live their life now in rebellion against God, what they don't understand is a day is coming where they will stand before the Lord and give an account. Uh, they will give an account to him, verse 5, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Their day is coming. People think because they're getting away with things right now and they're living these sinful, wicked lives. And uh, if God's up there, why hasn't he stru struck me yet? I mean, uh, uh, he's, nothing bad has happened to me. So either God's not real or... Maybe he doesn't care how I'm living. Or even worse, maybe he approves. Well, the Bible says, you know, there's coming a day when people will stand before God and give an account. Now, guys, when I read the news, and I've talked about this, as I look at what Peter's talking about here, and of course Paul in 2 Timothy 3, and I compare it to our day, um, when I see in the news the level of debauchery and immorality going on in our nation, uh, I'm just shocked. Maybe you've seen, like me, um, the stories are getting more frequent of teachers, female teachers, having sex with their students. I mean, these are women who went to college, had to pass a, a rigorous certification process. My wife uh, works in a school district. She understands that process, what it means to become a teacher. And then they get into the classroom, and uh, six months a year they're, they're having sex with a student or two going to jail, losing their lives. I don't understand it. And then I read these stories about uh, how more and more people are having sex in public, uh, where there's families not far, kids, like in public parks or uh, beaches and things. I was reading an article where the businesses in San Francisco are begging the city leaders to clean up the streets because nobody's coming. And they showed a picture of a guy defecating right there in the street, broad daylight, probably high as a kite because these folks, they're homeless because they're strung out on drugs. Alcohol, but primarily heroin and other drugs, have such a hold on them that they, they walk through their day in a stupor. And, and I, my heart goes out to them. But, but it's indicative of where we are as a society. And you see these people, and they were. I, I read an article about how that, um, uh, and it's not just San Francisco, they're one of the worst, though. But on the streets, uh, the sanitation department sweeping up piles of condoms and feces and, uh, and used syringes. And I'm like, Lord, our country is falling apart. We, we are disintegrating as a nation because... We really have turned our backs on you. There's plenty of churches still and so on. But there, there were a lot of, of, of um, people that went to temple back in the Old Testament. In fact, when Josiah, this young king, he was um, orphaned at a young age. At age of eight, he uh, 
started living with uh, one of the very godly priests, high priest, I believe it was, at that time, who raised him, raised him with the Lord. When he was 16, he began to seek the Lord. So he got saved. And what happened was one day, well, he just said, look, I want us to begin to use the temple again. See, it hadn't been used for years. In fact, it had fallen into disrepair. Uh, They were using it for a giant storage shed. And so they hired some people to start cleaning it out. And as they did, lo and behold, they found a copy of the law. I guess nobody had seen it. And so they began to read it, began to see, you know, how that um, God had said, if you obey me and and walk with me, I will bless you, Deuteronomy uh, 28 and all. If you disobey me and turn to idols and so on, these are the things I will bring against you. And he lists all these things, judgment and so on. And when these, uh, these two uh, people, I think one was a, a, one of the priests, uh, another scribe, when they read this, they tore their clothes and brought the scroll right into the king. He read it and tore his clothes because he realized we are in big trouble. Everything God said we were not to do, we're doing. And uh, so they called for a prophetess because there was, I guess uh, she was the only right-on prophetess. Uh, no other prophets. They were all probably corrupted. And uh, they they went to her, and uh, she told them, uh, Thus says the Lord, Yes, the judgment is coming, but Josiah, because you humbled yourself, uh, it won't come in your day, and so on. And um, But it was bad back then. And so what Josiah did was he got the temple uh, all cleaned up, paid those to do it, and they began the worship of God again. And people were coming to temple in droves. Well, nobody had grown up with the temple. I mean, it had been used for years. This was a novelty, okay? And so they were coming, and it was packed, and so on. And uh, people thought, oh, the nation's turning back to God. Look it, you know? And God said to Jeremiah, you go down there and stand by the temple, and you tell the people going in, don't say to yourself, oh, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. I mean, we're right with God because we've got the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah, I see the hearts. These people are going to church, I'll paraphrase, but their hearts are far from me. They're going through an outward reformation, but there's no inward repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that affects the way you live. A lot of people, you know, the church can be a novelty. And especially if it's one of these cutting-edge churches and they're doing stuff that no other church is doing. It's kind of a novelty. People swarm to be involved with this. But you know what? Just because you go to church means nothing. We have to understand. We've talked about that. This is something that we have to understand. God is looking at the heart. And, and you know, so uh, in Israel's day, we see this kind of this false piety. We see it today in America. We have a lot of churches, a lot of people going to church. And, you know, uh, a lot of people think we're okay with God because we have a lot of folks, a lot of churches and so on. God looks at the heart. And I don't see any real change in society where there's genuine revival, not just surface reformation. Genuine revival, it affects the heart and changes lives. Bars close down. Drugs stop flowing. Marriages are healed. It's just because God has touched the heart. Okay. Well, verse 6, 1 Peter 4, 6. Peter said, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, we need to be careful how we interpret this verse, since it's a little confusing and um, could be easily misunderstood because it's kind of confusing and therefore misapplied. For example, there are those who interpret this verse to mean that those people who died as unbelievers before Jesus came, well, God will preach the gospel to them, give them another chance, because after all, Jesus hadn't come yet. Well, they had God's word in the Old Testament. But, but there are those folks that, well, no, uh, the gospel was not in the Old Testament. Well, I disagree with that. That's another study, okay? Uh, the gospel goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. But anyways, they said, well, no, Jesus brought the gospel. And so uh, those folks that died before Christ, God's going to give them another chance. He's going to somehow preach the gospel to them wherever they are right now and give them another chance to be saved. Well, 
As we said a couple weeks ago when we studied chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, nowhere in Scripture do we read anywhere that God has ever given someone a second chance to be saved after they have died. Again, Hebrews 9.27 is pretty clear. Just as man is destined to die once, and after this comes the judgment. No exceptions. Now, some scholars kind of spiritualize this statement of Peter. They think what Peter is saying when he says, For this reason the gospel is preached also to those who are dead. They just simply interpret that to mean dead in trespasses and sins. Not literally dead, but, you know, Ephesians 2, 1, uh, unbelievers, dead in trespasses and sins. That's what Peter's talking about. But once again, guys, and this is a, a rule for everything you do when you study your Bible, make sure you're looking at the context. Read, you know, verses before and after to make sure you're not lifting the verse or the thought out of the pages of Scripture and interpreting it one way when there is a whole context it fits into. Context is everything. If we're going to properly interpret what uh, is being said in any given passage, especially this one. Now, if we look at the context, again, we realize that Peter is reminding his readers of the Christians who have been martyred for their faith. As I said, this was a terrible time for the church. Nero had unleashed a wave of persecution that was so horrific, it's hard for us to get our minds around it. And you can, you know, you can read about that on your own. Uh, in fact, you can get Fox's Book of Martyrs, which will give you testimony after testimony of godly men and women who died throughout the history of the church for their faith. It's a sobering book, and uh, one that if you're not going through persecution yourself, which we are not, reading about what others went through will help you get in your mind a context for what Peter is saying here. But... Um, Peter is talking about Christians who have been martyred for their faith. And I believe, guys, that's what he means when he said, For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Or in other words, those who are now dead at the time Peter was writing his epistle, but were very much alive when the gospel was preached to them. Again, uh, the gospel is only preached to those who are living, because there is no opportunity for salvation after death. I like what uh, author John Phillips said on this subject. He said, and I quote, The people to whom Peter refers here were dead. But when they were still alive, they had heard the joyful news of the gospel and had believed. Their lives had been, had been changed. Their transformed lives had activated the malicious dislike of men in the flesh. That's what Peter calls them. They're just unbelievers, of course. The judging referred to here seems to have been done by wicked people who had persecuted and even martyred the Christians. As a result, these people were now dead. But that was by no means the end of it. On the contrary, they now live according to God and the Spirit. Men in the flesh had done their worst. All they had succeeded in doing, though, was to promote these believers to glory. The people they had hated and hounded to death were, in fact, very much alive in heaven itself. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, used to say, One of these days you will read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive then than I am now. End quote. And so, guys, in that context, Peter's admonishing Christians to not only arm themselves with the same mind as Christ, willing to suffer for the name of God, to see people saved, okay? Arm yourself with that attitude, but also to arm yourself with the genuine hope of the reality of eternal life. He's saying to these folks, again, going through horrific persecution, he's saying, look, right now, wicked people are persecuting you uh, and even martyring some of our loved ones uh, who love Christ. The only way you're going to get through this, Peter said, is to keep your eyes on eternal life in heaven, which will give you the strength to live for Christ here on earth. Now, that's good advice. It's something that Paul the Apostle also said. Same thing. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. I mean, Paul said the same thing that Peter just said, only he expanded it a little bit. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, Paul said, Therefore we do not lose heart, 
For though our outward man is perishing, and again, persecution was the issue uh, and all, but though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, boy, that's what Paul called his sufferings. Uh, if you read what he went through, I don't think that was light affliction, but Paul said in the light of eternity, yeah, light affliction, which is but for a moment. His life is very short. Is working for us a far more exceeding an eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen here on this earth, but we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So keep your eyes on things above, not on things on the earth. And again, it's a lot easier when you're living in a situation where life is so hard, you don't know uh, if you wake up one day if you're going to make it to the end of the day. Now, we don't have it like that. We are blessed. We don't live with persecution. Not yet. We have everything we need. We get up. We look forward to all kinds of joyful things. Because of it, we have to work harder to have the mindset that Peter's talking about. It came easy for them because when you're living with horrific circumstances, it's a lot easier to look forward to heaven. Lord, get me out of here. But when you have kind of heaven on earth, which we have enjoyed in America. Um, you know, there's times when we feel like, well, not so bad here. You know, Lord, yeah, I, I want to go home someday. No rush, Lord. No rush. I mean, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not so bad here in this life, Lord. That's when you know you're loving the world too much, okay? Then verse 7, Peter said, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. When Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, he is admonishing his readers, again, to hang in there in the face of the severe persecution that they were experiencing. Because, as Peter is really saying it here, uh, the end of man's rebellion against God and the persecution of his people at the hands of the wicked was about to end. They say, well, wait, that was 2,000 years ago. Well, hang on to that, okay? I'll tell you why uh, they, they, Peter and the others felt this way. But, but that, that was the, the gist of it. That, look, the end of all things is at hand. We would say there's light at the end of the tunnel, guys. There's, there's light at the end of the... It looks pretty dark right now. But there's light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back soon. And when he does, this is all going to be over. It's all going to be over. Now, of course, we know that all persecution is going to end of God's people when... Jesus returns at his second coming. Uh, the first thing he does is he's going to judge the wicked who have gathered together against him in the valley of Megiddo to fight against the Lord. You can read about this in Revelation 19. First thing he does is he wipes them all out with the sword that proceeds from his mouth, which is the word, the same word that spoke the universe into existence. These people think they're going to fight against God. They got their tanks and Apache helicopters and surface to air missiles, and let's take them on. And the Lord breaks through the clouds with all of us and his angels and looks at this millions of people, no doubt, gathered to go to war against God, against him. He speaks the word, they're vaporized. And he takes the false prophet and the Antichrist and whips them into the lake of fire. And then he sets up his kingdom. But here's the thing, before that, though, and I think this is what Peter is actually referring to, before that, Jesus is going to come for his church and evacuate his people off the earth before his judgment upon this Christ-rejecting world is poured out. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. The uh, Greek verb translated is at hand, again, speaking of Christ's return for his church, the rapture, uh, is a word that means it could occur at any moment. It's imminent, as we talk about, the, the, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. It means there's nothing that has to happen before he comes for his church in the rapture. It could happen at any time, any time. That's why we always have to be ready. We must live then. And Jesus spoke about this, and Paul, Peter, Jude, all the New Testament writers talked about how important it was that we as Christians, because he could come at any moment for his church, that we constantly live with watchful vigilance, and anticipation, as well, with faithful service to our King. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, 40? Therefore you also be ready, 
for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, of course, to be ready and to be watchful for his coming, you have to know what the signs are, right? Jesus held his generation responsible, accountable, because they didn't know the signs of his coming. First coming. There was 330-some prophecies of his first coming. And yet when he came, they were caught I'm talking about the Jewish leadership primarily. They were caught off guard. And uh, at one point, Matthew 16, Jesus really chides them. He said, you know, you can look into the sky and predict what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. But you're ignorant of the signs of my coming. Luke 19, when Jesus rode up the Mount of Olives on that donkey, came to the top and saw Jerusalem laid out before him and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, began to weep. How often I wanted to gather you to myself. But now this day is hidden from your sight because you didn't know the day of your visitation. God had prophesied the very day Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem and um, declare himself Messiah. It was prophesied in Daniel 9. We've already studied that. From the time the command went forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, start counting, I'll paraphrase, 173,880 days later, Messiah would come. The commandment went forth from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, March 14, 445 B.C. You add the 173,880 days to that starting point. You've got to adjust for, I think, 16 leap years, and there's no year zero, so you, it's just one year from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. It's not, it's not as easy as it sounds. If you start... March 14th, 445 B.C., add those days, number of days to that starting point, brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem and declared himself to be Messiah, but was rejected by the leadership. Oh, his disciples were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. But the Jewish leadership, those that were in charge of the nation, rejected him. And so he said, because you did not know the day of your visitation, you should have known it. It was prophesied. Now judgment's going to come upon you. Christians can't be watchful. They can't be vigilant, looking for the Lord's return if they don't know the signs that precede his coming. Nothing for the rapture. That's imminent. There's plenty of signs that point to the second coming. Can't even open up a newspaper without seeing fulfilled prophecy anymore. And yet the church... I'm talking about the church in general, okay? The church of Jesus Christ should be in the most exciting period in its existence because we are seeing prophecies fulfilled almost every day, it seems like, of his second coming. Yet churches today are not teaching prophecy anymore, for the most part. There's a few. And prophecy makes people uncomfortable. You know, They don't want to think about the end of the world. They don't want to think about the rapture because they want to see their families and their kids grow up and their grandkids. Well, I'd love to see my grandkids grow up too, but you know what? The Lord is not going to say, oh, Phil, I mean, okay, uh, I'll, I'll wait a little while because I know you got some things you want to take care of. And, you know, I'll wait. Uh, you know, come on. You think heaven's going to be less than this? Okay, the Lord comes for us? No, much more. But um, the church today, for the most part, is ignorant of the signs of his coming because they're not studying prophecy. Pastors aren't teaching it anymore. Uh, I heard one famous pastor say he doesn't believe that the Christians should study prophecy. It makes them too heavenly-minded. They're no earthly good. Let me just say this. That's from the devil, that saying. You're not going to be any earthly good unless you are heavenly-minded. But it's obvious that Peter and Paul and the other apostles believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. In fact, James said in James 5, verse 8, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So when Peter said, Look, the end of all things is at hand, we're going home soon. That was 2,000 years ago. You say, Well, what happened? Well, you know, they believed any time. And that's good to live that way. I mean... If the Lord had told us he wasn't coming back till a certain date in history, guess what? Nobody would be living, really, for the Lord. Uh, we'd all be looking at the calendar going, I got time, you know. 
Uh, we get about a couple days out, and you know, I know he's, that a couple days to this coming, I don't get real serious. But um, these early Christians, they were all taught the imminency of the Lord's return for his church, the rapture. And they believed it so much that when the, that Christ was coming any moment, they believed it so much that when older Christians began to die, the younger Christians thought, oh no, they're going to miss out. They, they're lost. And they began to mourn over them as if they were now lost because everyone believed the Lord was coming so soon they didn't have a plan B. They didn't have any kind of theology. Uh, they just, he's coming. That's all they focused on. And when people began to die off, they began to say, well, what happened to them? They're lost. They're not going to enjoy the kingdom. Oh, they started mourning for these people. This prompted Paul, so I, better, I guess I better talk on this subject. It prompted Paul to address the issue in 1 Thessalonians 4. When he had turned there, and I know these are very familiar passages to you guys, but for the sake of new people and people that will listen to this online or on, on the radio, we can't assume people know these things. We have to, you know, look at them, even though you may have read them a thousand times, these verses. Paul is addressing this very issue. What happens to these older Christians? We thought Jesus was coming back. They were going to enter the kingdom age with us, and now they're dead. And are they lost? Begin to sorrow. Chapter 4, verse 13. Paul said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. That's the Christian way of saying Christians who have died, they've only fallen asleep. They're going to be, they're going to be awoken. Some Awoken, is that right? Awaked. Resurrected, okay? <laughs> concerning those who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, lest you sorrow, as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, it's a revelation from God, that I'm going to share with you now, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, till the rapture, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They're not lost. Their bodies are just sleeping. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Spread the word. They're not lost. They're going to actually precede us by a millisecond when the rapture happens. All right, verse 7. 1 Peter 4, 7. Again, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Look, if we really believe that the rapture could happen at any time, especially, especially if the signs of Jesus' second coming are everywhere, and I'm a pre-trib guy, I believe that the rapture will, will precede the second coming by at least seven years. What do you mean seven years? The seven-year tribulation period. I believe the rapture is going to happen. Then the seven-year tribulation period. Now, the rapture might happen five minutes before the tribulation period begins or five months, maybe five years. I don't think so. At least seven years, though, between the time of the rapture and Jesus' second coming. But look, if we really believe the rapture could happen at any moment, it should have an impact on the way we live our daily lives. That's if a person's really saved, okay? Again, there's a lot of professors. Jesus said... Uh, excuse me, Paul said to Titus, there's a lot of people who profess to know God, but their lives, lifestyle, tell a different story. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. Again, talking about a changed life and how it is in contrast to the world. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 4, Paul said, but you, brethren are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. It's a way of saying you're saved, you're in the truth of God. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We're no longer unbelievers. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Same thing Peter says. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Contrasting believers with unbelievers. Unbelievers live in darkness. 
they carouse, they drink, they do all kinds of immoral things in darkness. We as Christians, we live in the light of God's truth. We know the truth. Uh, our lives are changed and so on. Turn to Romans 13. Romans 13 started with verse 11. Paul's talking in to believers. He said, and do this, knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep. Even Christians can fall asleep in the light. That, that's the tragedy, but the reality. Even Christians can go to sleep in the light and not be watchful, not be vigilant. And when the Lord comes, catch them unprepared. Now, are they going to hell? No, of course not. They're saved by grace. That's why the Bible says some will be ashamed of his appearing because they haven't been watching. They haven't been living for him. Uh, they've gotten into the world, but they're still saved. He said, you know, knowing the time that it is now high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the night of man's rebellion. The day is at hand, the day of Christ's return in his kingdom. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Sounds very much like what Peter is saying, right? The idea, guys, behind watchful in our prayers means praying consistently and fervently while you're watching, while you're watching. The Greek word for watching or watchful is a word that means to be awake, to be vigilant, okay? Um, can I just say this? There's a difference between waiting for the Lord's return and watching for the Lord's return. You say, well, what's the difference? So a lot of folks, Christians, who are waiting for the Lord's return, but not necessarily watching for His return. It's kind of like if um, I invited you over for dinner at a certain time. We, we said, you know, around 6, okay? And then as it got close to 6, I got busy, and, and then when the doorbell rang, here you are, you caught me kind of off guard. That's different than if I actually was standing by the window watching for your coming. I wouldn't be caught off guard. I wouldn't be caught by surprise, right? And, and, and really, we talk about waiting for the Lord. Really, the Bible talks about watching for the Lord's return. Again, being vigilant, looking for the signs, knowing what's going on around you so that you are ready, that you're not caught off guard, that you're busy doing the work of the Lord, right? Um, so the Greek word watchful means to be awake, to be vigilant. Look, I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you do. In the New Testament, we are commanded to watch, listen, for the coming of two very different lions. You ever think about that? Thought about being watchful, vigilant. In the New Testament, we are commanded to be watchful for the coming of two very different lions. The first lion that we are to be watchful for is the devil, who Peter said in chapter 5, verse 8, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Or as Jesus put it, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, one of the main weapons that the devil uses against us is division. Why division? Because it works really well. It works really well. The devil is all about sowing division in churches, in families, in marriages, in our nation. I think we're divided. As a nation? Yeah. One of the main weapons he'll use against us is division. In Mark chapter 3, verse 25, Jesus said, If a house, and let me paraphrase, that could be a marriage, a church, a country. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Satan's strategy has always been divide and conquer. Because he knows when we're unified, we're strong and victorious. And when we're divided, we are weak and defeated. There is strength in unity. You can read Ecclesiastes 4:12. A two-fold cord, then a three-fold cord. You had, well, I'm thinking of marriage primarily, husband and wife walking in unity. Add the Lord to that. A three-fold cord is not quickly broken. There is strength in unity. And that's why, guys, the night before Jesus went to the cross, in John 17, when he prayed his high priestly prayer, at one point, he prayed to the Father that his disciples, Jesus' disciples, all of us, really, 
might be one, even as the Father and Jesus were one. That we might walk in unity. Okay, that we might walk in unity. I think the Apostle Paul, no doubt, picking up on that idea, admonished us in Ephesians chapter 4 to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Make every effort that the church would walk in unity, make it the priority. Because Paul knew, as Jesus knew, that the church was going to be attacked by the devil like nothing has ever been attacked. And if the church remained unified and all, we would have strength and we would be able to be victorious. If the devil could divide us, and he uses all kinds of things to divide us, he can defeat us. However, there's one caveat, though, that Jesus went on to say in John 17, verse 17, he said that our unity must be based on the truth of God. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So make them one. But that unity had to be based on the truth of God's word. We can't have unity with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and unfortunately, there was a time, and I think maybe it's still going on, where the church felt that the end justified the means. And if the end was stopping abortion, it didn't matter if we partnered with Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses because the end was to save these unborn children. So we need to you know, come together with whoever. I think that's a very flawed strategy. There's plenty of Christians that can work together to end abortion, and, and are. We don't want to give the world the impression we're all big one happy family. Or the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses the impression that we believe they're just like us. Because, you know, then people say, well, I saw Pastor Phil over there demonstrating against abortion with that Mormon I work with. I guess they're all the same. I'll go to the Mormon's church this Sunday. Check it out. You don't want that. You don't want that. Guys, Satan wants to destroy the unity in our churches through a lot of ways, as I said. False doctrine is one. Talking to a pastor just the other day, we were on the radio together. And before we went on, we were talking to each other and, uh, uh, you know, how things going. Uh, he was a elder here for years and then went up to uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin to take over a Calvary, the pastor had fallen uh, up there and so they needed a pastor and he heard about it and prayed and they went up there to take it over that was like 25 years ago and uh, i was i was asking him i said how are things going he said well this false doctrine came through and it divided the church now, this one particular doctrine was the hebrew roots movement without getting too much into it basically where christians believe that they're under the law still and Got to keep the feasts and the Sabbaths, and I, I totally um, reject that. I mean, you read Galatians and read Hebrews primarily. We are no longer under the law. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, and Jesus said it is finished on the cross. But anyways, he, and I just said, wow. And, and his church has been devastated by this false teaching. And uh, there's many other false teachings that have devastated uh, churches, divided them. And, uh, but then a lot of times churches are divided over just petty bickering, you know, pride trips and so on and so forth, you know, egos. But I think one of the main things or main ways that Satan, one of the main things he wants to divide is marriages. If you think about it, churches are built... But their families coming together. Families are marriages uh, that start start off as marriages, right? A nation is nothing more than a group of families all knit together. If Satan can destroy marriages, he can destroy families. If he can destroy families, he can destroy churches and our nation and so on. He's doing a very good job, by the way. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul reminded us that our real struggles are not with each other, but with principalities and powers the hosts of wickedness in the spirit realm our real fight is against satan and his demons okay remember when paul warned us about that in ephesians 6 he did so right on the heels of his teaching on marriage could it be that paul was implying that marriages can expect to be the target of much of the spiritual warfare that we encounter as christians i think that's probably true in fact as we read the first few chapters in the book of genesis 
we can see that it didn't take long, didn't take Satan long to attack the first marriage on the face of the earth. Okay, At the end of Genesis 2, God marries Adam and Eve. Beginning of chapter 3, Satan attacks, right? Look, be on guard. I want to just say this to the couples. Marriages are under attack like never before. For a lot of reasons, okay? But marriages are under attack like never before. Remember, you are not fighting flesh and blood. Your husband is not, he might be a problem, but he's not the problem. It's not your wife. It's the devil who is pushing buttons and is trying to divide you so he can conquer your marriage, destroy it. Your kids, does that enough times he can destroy churches and all kinds of things. Don't let the devil tear your marriage apart through petty, bickering, and selfishness. We did a couple of part study on marriage. We started chapter 3 of 1 Peter. You can dig those out. They're online. So I'll leave it at that. So uh, the first lion we are commanded to be on guard for or be watchful for is the devil who goes about like a roaring lion. We'll end with this. The second lion we need to be watching for is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we've already been talking about this tonight, but turn to Mark chapter 13. And again, a lot of Christians are not watching for the Lord's return. Look at how emphatic it was what Jesus says here. Mark 13, starting with verse 32. But of that day and hour, many believe he's talking about the rapture here. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Wow. I think the Lord was pretty you know, adamant about us being watchful for his return. And again, the reason that God didn't tell us the day and hour that Jesus was coming back is because it would lead to laziness and carnality, knowing that his coming was maybe still afar off. But Jesus said, an evil servant says, my master delays his coming. And I can only imagine a Christians saying that if they have not studied prophecy. But look, the effects, and I'll end with this, the effects of living in such a way that you're watching for Jesus, that he could be coming back at any time. You know what that produces? It produces a holy life. That's why the devil doesn't want the church teaching prophecy. He knows, because the Bible says it, 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope, the hope of Christ's return at any time, everyone who has this hope in him, in Jesus, purifies himself just as Christ is pure. So watching for the Lord's return produces holy living. Why? How? Well, because if he could come back at any moment, you don't want him coming back when you're involved in sin, right? I mean, you know, if that's really on your mind, good heavens. I wouldn't want the Lord to come back and catch me in sin. I want to be, you know, walking with him and purity and when he comes i don't want to be ashamed that it's coming and so that promotes holy living or at least it should all right i will leave it there and we'll pick it up with the we got a whole verse done i think uh, two verses <laughs> we'll uh, pick it up with verse eight next time father we thank you lord for your word and how lord you have filled your word with prophecies that deal with your second coming for us of course Lord, we uh, ask you to give us grace to study those, to meditate on them, to uh, use them to be watchful for your coming. And give us grace, Lord, that we would walk in the Spirit every day. And that, Lord, you would uh, use us to tell others about you, because you're coming. And any moment we could hear the trumpet blast, the angels shout, and, Lord Jesus, you would say to your church, come up here. Wow. That would be the end of all hardship, suffering, pain, sadness, and death. 
in the beginning of an existence we can only imagine, but will experience firsthand on that moment. So we thank you, Lord. Give us grace to live until that time with all our heart for you. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.